to The Geek in Review, the podcast focused on innovative and creative ideas in the legal industry. I'm Marlene Gaybauer. And I'm Greg Lambert. So this week, we are finally, yes. finally getting to a topic that we started to cover back in, I think it was early 2019, and that is on the topic of the right to be forgotten. And, uh, you know, well, we had a, a number of events that kept our guests and Kleinfelter from the University of North Carolina School of Law from being here. We promise we we didn't forget about her. Yeah, I am I am finally <laughs> glad we were able to make this this interview work. <laughs> we had a great discussion about the current state of the internet and the regulations around the globe or lack thereof that protect the mm. users. I really loved her answer to our crystal ball question of where we're going to be in five years when it comes to data and privacy on the internet. So uh, stick around for that. But first up, we brought back Molly Huey from Bloomberg Law to talk about the 2022 Bloomberg DEI framework and some of the changes that they've put in the survey this year. So let's go ahead and listen to Molly. We'd like to welcome back Molly Huey, Team Lead, Data Analyst, and Surveys for Bloomberg Law. Molly, welcome back to the Geek and Review. Thank you. So, Molly, we wanted to have you drop in and give us an update on what you're doing with the DEI framework for 2022 now that it's live. First of all, tell everyone what the DEI framework is for those who may not have listened in on the last time you were here. Fantastic. Thank you. Um, our DEI framework is a listing of law firms that meet or exceed a standard of diversity. We're hoping to standardize diversity reporting among law firms. And because we're publishing a list of firms that make the cut, it makes um, makes this usually opaque area much more transparent. All right. So we brought you in for one particular reason, and that was to tell us what's different this year in the uh, 2022 survey. And why you're adding or changing some of the things that that you've been tracking. Mm -hmm. So it's still a beast of a survey. We are collecting everything. But some new additions this year, we're starting to ask about neurodiversity. And I know we all talked about that a year or so ago when the first version came out. You know, we're not asking for numbers this year, but we're starting to ask kind of those check boxes. You know, is it something you're measuring or do you have an affinity group for it? Just, you know, it's sprinkled in through a lot of different places so we can start to see what firms are doing in this space. Are you are you defining neurodiversity in a, in a particular way? Um, we are. We're we're basically saying kind of broadly that it's brains that function differently with examples like dyslexia, autism spectrum, that sort of thing. So we've added that. We've also added a couple of specific questions about origination credit and about kind of partnership tracking. So those should be hopefully really interesting and get us some really good data. So Molly, remind everyone how firms can participate in the survey. So we have a project page. It's at pro.bloomberglaw.com backslash DEI, which I think you all will put in the show notes as well. It will be in the show notes. Yes. And right at the top banner of that page, there's a, there's a button to submit your data. And when you click on that button, you go to a contact form that you just put your name, your, your firm and your contact details. And then I'll reach out and send a specific access link so that your firm can put all their data in our secure portal. Do you have a goal for the number of firms that you would like to see participate this year? Last year, we had 28 firms make the list. We had a handful more than that put in their data. I'm hoping we have 75 firms participate this year. That's a big stretch goal, and I'm putting it out there in the world. So, all right, people, come on. (laughs) 
<laughs> All right, Joel. Make sure that uh, if you are responsible for that or know someone at your firm that is, uh, pass this along to them. So, uh, Molly Huey from uh, Bloomberg Law, thanks for dropping in and giving us an update on the DEI framework. And hopefully, we can bring you back, say, in October or so when, when the results uh, come out. When the uh, results are out. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. More firms that submit data, the better data we're going to have to share with everyone. All right. Thanks. Thank you. Thanks so much. When the internet began back in the 90s, many of us thought this was going to be the great equalizer for the world and become a utopia of information sharing and learning. Well, it hasn't quite worked out that way. No, it hasn't. <laughs> this week's guest is an expert in data privacy across the globe, and she comes in to share what she's learned in her time teaching about it, both in Helsinki, Finland, with the EU laws, and what we are also doing here in the U.S. We'd like to welcome Anne Kleinfelter, Henry B. Brandeis Distinguished Professor of Law and Director of the Law Library at the University of North Carolina School of Law. Anne, welcome to the Geek and Review. Thanks for having me. Well, Anne, we reached back to you, I think, way back in, in 2019 to try <laughs> to get you on the podcast then, which is kind of funny because we were talking about uh, the topic of right to be forgotten, and it feels like we we got forgotten uh, along the way uh, on here. Almost, almost forgotten. Almost a forgotten. A few things have happened between then and now. That's little, what, little, that's, little bit. That's what I hear. Well, one of the, the exciting things was, you know, that you were in Europe at the time, and then we had uh, the pandemic of 2020. So, you know, I think we're okay to finally pick this back up a couple of years, years That's later. That's great. That's great. <laughs> so speaking of which, you know, you went to Finland mm -hmm. where you were able to teach at the University of Helsinki. How was that? It was amazing. It was amazing, um, especially for a person who grew up in Alabama to go to a place that cold. That was a big adventure. So I, I know that you're not interviewing me to tell you about sauna, but I'm happy to get into that later if you want to. Absolutely. But, um, I was in Finland for the fall of 2019. It was a Fulbright visit. It was co-sponsored with Nokia, the Finnish company, technology company. And I did. I taught U.S. privacy law at the University of Helsinki Law School. And I conducted research and interviewed policy setters for Helsinki libraries to find out how do they comply with the European Union right to be forgotten, or as they now call it, the right to erasure. Erasure. Okay. That sounds more permanent. It does, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah. It yeah. Like it sounds less human, like it's a tool. I, there, right. there are many different theories, believe it or not, about forgetting versus erasing, but same thing, really, under the law. Okay. So. Just just out of curiosity, I'm I'm assuming since you're a person from Alabama, uh, you did not uh, speak Finnish. Uh, or, uh, but... Good point. Yes, <laughs> I, I was actually surprised by how great a fit this trip was because it was not on my radar. One of my um, colleagues in privacy law, uh, Stuart Brotman, who's a professor at Tennessee, uh, he recommended this to me. He had held the position before and I kept learning more and more and found well they first of all <laughs> to your question they speak English a lot yeah. of people almost everyone in Helsinki speaks English and Finnish is a most unusual language for those of us who come from an English um, background it, it is unlike a lot of the things we might um, be more familiar with so I also found out that the Finns they love technology 
So this is the home of Angry Birds and Nokia phones, which, you know, right. to their detriment, were indestructible. So you didn't need to ever replace them. But now the, <laughs> the company's doing all kinds of exciting things with smart cities. And anyway, thriving uh, Finnish company, uh, emblematic of their fascination with innovation, design, and a big startup culture. But they also really love libraries. As you can imagine, part of the year, it's cold. So it's really <laughs> great dark. to go inside a library where there are lights and books. They're, they're very um, introspective people. Um, and so I, you might be surprised that in honor of their 100-year anniversary of the founding of their country, what they chose to do in Helsinki was build a grand modern public library. It is stunning. That's so, great. and it faces Parliament. It's a really beautiful place uh, to be, and their education system is top notch. Plus, I kept learning about the University of Helsinki and found that they had a lot of scholars who do work in areas that I'm interested in, data yeah. protection and privacy. So it was a great fit for me, and I was lucky. My husband works for a company that has an office in Helsinki, so. We were so you didn't have to leave to them behind. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's good. That's good. All right. Well, let's let's turn our sights to the internet for a second. So back in 1994, uh, I think many of us looked at the internet as the great equalizer. It was, uh, you know, sort of potential utopia of thoughts and ideas and communication. Now in 2022, it's kind of a hot mess, right? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you know, we we need it, we use it, it's part of our everyday life, and we sure couldn't have been as efficient during the pandemic as we have been if we didn't have it, but it's definitely not utopia. So let's start off with the biggest question that I can think of. Um, where did we go wrong? Yeah. <laughs> we'll start well, off with an easy question. Thanks for that easy question. <laughs> question. <laughs> uh, no, I'll sure say here. first that you know, a lot of the internet still is, it's pretty great. There's so much content. But the economic model is surveillance capitalism. You know, and that's not pretty. So it, it's just true that mostly on the internet you pay with privacy. Sometimes you pay with money too. And we might have continued with uh, advertisements that just match the content of what you were looking at and engaging with. But instead, we have advertisements that specifically target the individual. And we're now overwhelmed by the invisibility of what's happening to us because as we are tracked, data is collected across platforms and devices and algorithms are applied to create profiles that are used in so many different ways we don't even understand. It may limit what we see, may provoke or manipulate us, and all pretty much happening without our understanding about how it comes to be. So that's, that's kind of, it, it's the economic model. You right. know, people, people defend the privacy payment system as egalitarian because poor people could not pay for internet services while the wealthy could. That's the argument. But if everybody were served contextual ads, that would be a egalitarian. Right. And yeah. if the, um, and I would say that the, the profits are not distributed in an egalitarian way. So it's, it's hard to say that, that the way that we've set it up is, is to be 
cherished because of its egalitarian qualities. And uh, people also defend the payment system in privacy as a way to respect consumers who can make their own choices. You know, that's, that's how we've set up a lot of privacy as well. You chose to send that information out into the ether. Mm -hmm. And yes, it got used in ways you could never imagine. But that was your choice. Yeah. And you are an adult and you're a grown-up and we're not going to interfere with that. So I, I, there are a lot of studies, though, that suggest that this is... Yeah. Except you can't get what you want without giving it up. Yeah, you don't... It, it's hard to say you're really making a choice. Yeah, I yeah. have I have a follow-up question, like, um, and it's it's somewhat related. But so when you see the cookie notices come up now, and you go in there and you change all of the the permissions, you know how how effective is that really? Well, that remains to be seen. We have to assume that that is exercising our choice and that we are actually making an impact. But there's so many other ways besides cookies to track people. That's just one technology. So this is what happens in privacy regulation is that we end up with these very specific um, provisions and protections and people get excited about it and think they have control and then it reduces a chilling effect on use of all of these tools. And then, you know, it's like a leapfrog game. You know, there'll be a new tracking technology, whether it's some kind of pixel tracking or it's just, you know, any number of ways to take what remains besides the cookie information and pair it with other data that might create a rich profile of you. So it's not nothing. I am yeah. not one of those people who says, well, get over it. You don't have any privacy anyway. I, I don't think it's a dichotomy. Like there are so many metaphors the horse out of the barn, yeah, sometimes you can bring that horse back, you know, yeah. so, and maybe there's something else left in the barn, you know, I, so. I, st I still want to know how they, how they know if I need some kind of kitchen utensil that I've just talked to my wife and all of a sudden that shows up on my Facebook page. Or I just page. think about it. <laughs> well, it is, that that is the way people, people walk around and um, wonder, you know, what, I, I don't understand, how is this happening? And, you know, there, there's so many, uh, collectors of data about us, depending on how many kinds of devices you have. You know, a smart home kind of device gets a lot of information, uh, depending on what you've enabled on your cell phone. There are all these different things. Now, some companies don't want to share, so it's not like those pieces of information are aggregated all the time, but a, a lot of it is. But there, there's not a huge amount of transparency. So we, we do rely on a lot of scholars and technologists who work to sort of reverse engineer or explore and, and test to tell us journalists are doing great work to try to help us understand this. Even Consumer um, Reports is in on this now. They're doing evaluating products with privacy lens. Yeah, it, it's amazing. Every once in a while you, you find a company that's gotten caught doing something that the they either said they weren't doing or were, were hiding on. So it's, it's really kind of interesting on, on well, those. Well, that's a months. really good point, Greg. I mean, the, that would actually trigger consumer protection law because deception is one of the authorities that is given to the Federal Trade Commission. And they can investigate and bring actions against 
companies who are engaged in trade who have deceived us, who promise something and fail to live up to that promise. That is really the cornerstone of modern privacy law in the United States. Okay. Well, speaking of uh, data privacy uh, laws, you know, governments, you know, such as the the uh, Consumer Protection Agency, you know, have tried for years to step in with with regulations on data privacy. But you know, one thing you have to deal with is that the the internet itself is just vast and it's global. Can you walk us through some of the attempts on regulating privacy from different governments across the world and the effectiveness of some of those? Well, I can speak to some. You're you're absolutely right that there are some challenges because while law has these country by country or even, you know, large groups like the European Union uh, composed of countries, (laughs) jurisdictions, or like the United States, (laughs) too, um, the Internet is ambient. You know, it's just, it does not really respect jurisdictions very well. There are some ways, but... I would say that it's not as if uh, we've done a great job of trying to regulate it in the United States. You do hear a lot about data privacy, but it's it's certainly not resulted in any kind of broad, uniform federal law in the United States, although that is being debated right now. The European Union does have, and some other parts of the world, have taken steps to enact broad data privacy regulation. And over here, we have states doing a lot of innovation <laughs> in, right. in data protection law. And so California and Virginia and Colorado have passed laws about uh, limiting the collection, use, and retention of personal information. Illinois has a biometrics uh, data protection law. And we have a lot of narrow statutes because in the United States, you know, we don't want to pass a law until we absolutely have to. We are not a nation of people who love laws, right? Yeah, and we don't want to strangle business, Bingo. right? So, Absolutely <laughs> have to. That but is look right. at how much money they're making. We don't want to interrupt. <laughs> so we do things like the Video Rental Privacy Protection Act. Right. Or, or larger than that, HIPAA. But HIPAA is really fairly narrow, if you think about it. It only applies to healthcare providers and insurers and the clearinghouses that support that. But, you know, if you have a a health app on your phone or something like that on a device, it may not be covered at all by HIPAA. So we have a lot of gaps in our in our system, but you're absolutely right. And about the internet eluding a lot of these uh, attempts, even when we do make them, and that's exactly what I was writing about when I got back from Finland. I got to do some writing with uh, a PhD candidate from the University of Helsinki and we were looking at a case that was decided while I was there by the European Union Court of Justice saying because Google had said oh you can't have the right to be forgotten that must be enforced around the world that's what France was asserting and so the court agreed with with Google actually because Google was doing some kind of good enough, bring the horse back in the barn, geotagging kind of, um, you know, limitation of their, uh, of a particular case from France to just people from France. Mm. So, yeah, I guess that makes sense in the fact that it's a law of a certain country that uh, I guess Google's argument was as long as we're following it with our Google.fr 
That's uh, right. That's right. So. Well, they started that, and then they decided to check like IP address, who, where they're coming from, because the the problem was, of course, a lot of people in Europe can speak multiple languages and would mm. be happy to use other search engines, and so that was thwarting the right of the person who was seeking to not have things about them come up in a personal name search that yeah. were protected under the European law. Mm. So mm. You're, you're absolutely right. But the truth is that the law is, they, they said it didn't have, it, it could have applied throughout Europe, but it didn't. And that's mm. because, frankly, privacy has to fight with other, not only just other interests, like all the fun on the internet, but just other interests like freedom of expression. So those are, in Europe, they think of privacy and data protection as human rights on par with expression. And so they think each country might have a different balancing of those. Mm. Yeah, that, that would be hard to, hard to regulate and hard, hard to implement, I would, I would think. So. think you yes, th you got it. Do you think that the U.S. will ever get to a point where you know, they, they do something like the right to erasure? Well, that's a great question. We have a few laws already that that have a component of the right to erasure, right. but in that very narrow sense of how we do most of our privacy law, like California has a law for minors who posted something on a platform when they were a minor and then regret it later. They can contact the platform to have it removed, and you can imagine how that would be insufficient if this information has traveled elsewhere or maybe the platform's gone, you know, there's all kinds of, of things, but it's not nothing. And um, we have, you know, in bankruptcy, that that information does expire in terms of credit reports after a certain number of years. So that's like a right to be forgotten. And then we have a tort, a tort claim that sometimes is used to prevent publication of information that might be stale. We'll call it that. Like, because the notion is that people need to have a way to rehabilitate themselves or move on. You know, we have a tradition in our country long ago of a fresh start. Yeah. Well, um, one of the things that uh, caused me to reach out to you is I, I have a friend of mine who is not a librarian who brought up the question of, well, and one, I think she kind of confuses arch archivists and librarians sometimes. Uh, um, but, you know, they're, we're kind of known for librarians being able to collect information, to store information, to share uh, information. And so when the governments come in and say, we want to be able to essentially erase certain pieces of information, you know, even when they have the best of intentions with that. Does that cause the hair on the back of your neck to kind of raise up sometimes and, and dive into uh, and find out, is, is this actually legitimate or are there going to be some unintended uh, consequences for this? What, what's been your reaction? Well, that, that's actually the basis of my application to go to Finland was to explore that very conflict. If you think about it, libraries, many of them do archival work um, and archives alone are committed to exactly what you describe. And they've been described as memory institutions. So right to be forgotten memory institutions coming to a theater <laughs> near you, big conflict you can see. So, yes, it makes the hair on the back of my head stand up, and, and 
this is the struggle that I have as someone who teaches privacy law and as a librarian. I'm sort of, you know, torn. But mm -hmm. trying to balance those things and find a way forward is, is really important. So a lot of, of ways that this has um, evolved in archives for years before we had these rights to be forgotten was just the notion that instead of this right to be forgotten, which, you know, is just describing when information gets stale, it might spring into action. You might have a right to be forgotten after a certain period of time, right? That's the forgetting part. But librarians and archivists will say, well, that's fine, but you gotta you got to look forward a hundred years from now, that's when yeah. we want it. And that's when the right to be remembered comes back into action a hundred years later. So protect it and keep it under lock and key, which is really hard. Um, and then we want to have it because it's history. It is the story of all of us because we really aren't just individuals. We, we are also social creatures as we've been learning in the pandemic. <laughs> and missing each other, you know? Yeah. So that's, that is a big issue. So in Europe, you'll be glad to know that the librarians and archivists did mobilize in the, the way that you would expect a good set of librarians to mobilize. And there is an exception for archival purposes under the right to erasure. There's also exceptions for balancing freedom of expression. So yep. as you mentioned, hard to implement. But those things are in there, so most of the libraries there were not worried about this. Yeah, I've got a, I've got a button somewhere around here from Donald Rumsfeld uh, saying, calling us radical militant librarians. Right. So yeah. one, one of my favorite quotes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, we, we are quiet, but we can put together a big organizational effort, can't we? So Amen. I think that that would, that would be true here should something – Come. And, and another thing that happens in the U.S. is even when there's not something written into the law, sometimes courts will say, hey, this violates the First Amendment. So we're yeah. going to have to have, that's the way we got fair use in copyright was from um, a court originally as sort of a way to accommodate the First Amendment. All right. So I'm going to move away from the courts and I'm going to go into the metaverse. <laughs> oh, boy. Um, I'm sure it's courts. They're will be not in, in the metaverse. metaverse, I don't think. <laughs> not yet. Um, you know, how did the new features, you know, like the metaverse platform, create, you know, new problems when it comes to an individual's privacy rights on the internet? Well, that is where all the fun comes in in privacy law, is that you have to take laws that were created, a lot of them in the 1970s and apply them to new technologies and contexts like the metaverse. But some of the laws are, are more recent. Um, I would say the, the Illinois law about biometrics is likely to be a barrier. They require consent for a lot of the face recognition and biometrics that underlie a lot of the AI that is part of the metaverse. and. Then we'd also have the Federal Trade Commission's Consumer Protection Authority to look and see if some secondary uses, we like to say, which means, you know, something you didn't expect is happening to the data that you allowed to be collected. Some of that might be unfair. It might even be, it might be deceptive. And we're going to be looking at how the AI might provoke 
concerns like that about, you know, all the data that's collected is, it's astounding how many conclusions you can draw about people from things that we think are innocuous. But the tools can derive some very sensitive conclusions about your health, your um, uh, religion, uh, all kinds of things you would think, oh no, that's not, that's not obvious, but it's, it's derived. But yeah. there's also the problem of discrimination, because we've seen some of these uh, face recognition algorithms result in discrimination. That's actually a live topic right now. So I think that there will be some some struggles and some pushback. There will be some some folks who will be pressing back as the metaverse moves forward. We'll see. Yeah, yeah I've, I've heard a uh, situation, this is all anecdotal, but things like uh, being able to track somebody's mouse movements or I imagine with like an with an eye visor eye oculus thing that you can track eye movements or head movements and get actual real health information yeah. uh, on, on these folks. And, I, you know, I've heard people warn that this is something that there are people that are looking into how, how do you track that without them, without people actually knowing uh, that you're tracking. So I think there's, you know, I, I would say the more you connect yourself and, and especially when you physically connect yourself, that you're going to be able to give more privacy information out with or without knowing it. Just 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 my anecdotal talk there. No, that's 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 true. I mean, you know, they they're tracking those eye movements now in test taking software too. Mm-hmm. Well, this kind of touches on my final question. Um, so, you know, we're talking about sort of what's, you know, what's sort of out there. So, um, this is this is what we call our crystal ball question. So, okay. uh, you know, we ask guests to sort of look into their crystal ball and peer into the future for us. So, what kinds of changes or challenges do you see? over the next five or so years when it comes to privacy, um, you know, whatever the internet turns into at that point? Well, since you suggested that, was it 94, we were supposed to think that there was utopia on the internet? Mm-hmm. I'm going to go, I'm going to go with utopia. And Ooh, I like yeah. so here's okay. how we're going to get to utopia. First, things are going to get worse. <laughs> <laughs> Right? It might be necessary to for things to get worse and obviously worse in order for utopia to emerge. People start to see about the applicant screening pool for that discriminated against them when they were trying to get a job. So they're gonna make some noise or I did not give you permission to use my image for your biometrics database and I'm gonna make some noise. And sadly, weak Privacy or data security will cause more infrastructure disruptions, financial harm, and even more violence as angry people can, you know, get home addresses on people and do damage. And maybe even, you know, are stirred up into more damage activity. So a lot of these things, they're already happening. I expect more. And then there will be a sense of uh, a bounce, I think for privacy. And all this time, I think we're already starting to see and we'll see more of privacy enhancing technologies, we like to call them pets, and policies. So people will adopt more pets. uh, And we're going to see, it's not just DuckDuckGo and VPNs, that's just the tip of the iceberg. There'll be AI tools to anonymize video, 
differential privacy techniques, um, all kinds of ways to gain utility from data sets without the risk of identifying individuals. Um, services for collecting the data that that businesses hold about you. I mean, things you could do, but they're very time-consuming, cumbersome to do. I think there will be a lot more of this um, coming into play. And there will also be companies who care about this. They think it's part of their business model and their reputation, and so they'll be investing in it too. And then my third factor in the, the emergence of utopia is that somebody, somebody, and I, I don't know who, but somebody who's made obscene amounts of money from this surveillance capitalism economy is going to choose to create privacy hubs at local libraries across the country, right? Just like Andrew Carnegie, who built libraries across the U.S., distributing That's his right. railroad and steel wealth, we're going to see some people who are actually modern beneficiaries of these new industries actually target privacy, trying okay. to promote it through the local library. The, the, the Jeff Bezos uh, terminals at, uh, at each <laughs> library. Well, you know, libraries can be privacy intermediaries for people who can use the library's IP address, passwords, and librarians can give guidance um, for helping people get access to information they need for jobs, education, and just fun. Good. So well, I think that's, that's how we're going to get there. It's going to be utopia. It's going to get bad. I hope to. I hope to see you pa on the other side of this dystopia into this utopia mm -hmm. that we're. Yeah, we're going to go I hope into. so too. <laughs> well, I'll talk again in five years. Yes, thanks. So, Ann Kleinfelter from the University of North Carolina School of Law. Thank you very much. I, I, I hated that it took us two years to get you on, but I'm I'm so happy that we got you. Yeah, it's a pleasure. You so much. Thanks. Well, it was good to finally, finally, finally get yes. Ann Kleinfelter on the on the show. So, uh, I mean, if you're if you're going to forget about something, this probably is <laughs> is the one one to do. But uh, I, again, I, I promise we didn't we didn't forget. But I really have to point out what she said there at the end about the internet and her view that it will get better, that it may actually become the utopia that we have. But but it's going to get worse. But it's going to get worse. <laughs> First. <laughs> which, which, which I think I think is, is probably spot on. Um, and while I appreciate her enthusiasm for the next uh, group of Andrew Carnegie's out there to come in and use the public library system to, to be these kind of safety zones for internet privacy, um, I'm I don't know if that I'm holding my breath for the uh, the bank of Jeff Bezos uh, terminals at the uh, the local public library, but you know, fingers crossed here. Maybe maybe that will happen. Exactly. So thanks again to Ann Kleinfelter from the University of North Carolina School of Law for coming in and finally talking to us. Thank you, Ann. Glad we could make it work. So thanks to all of you for taking the time to listen to the Geek and Review podcast. If you enjoy the show, share it with a colleague. We'd love to hear from you, so reach out to us on social media. I can be found at M on Twitter. And I can be reached at Glambert on Twitter. Or leave us a voicemail on the Geek & Review hotline at 713-487-7270. And as always, the music you hear is from Jerry David DeSicca. Thank you, Jerry. Thanks, Jerry. All right, Marlene, um, I'm going to go find those uh, safety terminals at the uh, public library. <laughs> go for it. <laughs> <laughs>